Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience, where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrero. Let's have some fun. My guest today is Shante Dr. Shante Williams. She's a healthcare venture capitalist and an impact investor and a keynote speaker. She earned her MBA from Queens University of Charlotte and her PhD in biomedical science and neurological surgery from Ohio State University. Dr. Williams has over 13 years of experience in biotech and pharmaceutical research, development, and consulting. She's currently the chief operating officer at Black Pearl Global Investments, and she recently won a Charlotte Inno on Fire Award. According to the Charlotte Inno website, Dr. Shante Williams is a veritable renaissance woman. As a venture capitalist, her fundraising efforts include raising $50 million for both a healthcare and social impact-focused fund. Additionally, she advises more than 130 entities across the ecosystem and serves as a managing partner of RW Capital Partners. Hi, Shante. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm going to call you Dr. Alexis. Dr. Shante. I'm all about it. <laughs> I wish everyone would call me that, right? I spent so much time and money trying to get the damn thing. Exactly. So Innovation Week is coming up in Charlotte, and you're taking part in Seed the South. Seed the South is a high-profile event bringing together startups and investors as a way to highlight, celebrate, and grow the entrepreneurial scene here in Charlotte and the Southeast. Before we talk about your involvement in Seed the South and your advice for people pitching at the event, I want to start with sort of a quick lightning round. So what was 10-year-old Shantae like? Oh, I think she was really cool. Probably other people would disagree. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think 10-year-old Shantae was studious, um, definitely observant, um, and inquisitive. I probably was quite the more, the annoying child to all the adults around me because I wanted to know any and everything about everything. Mm. A lot of asking why, why, why. Yes. <laughs> and then being escorted out of the room. <laughs> um, what's your non-work-related superpower? Sleeping. I am excellent at napping. Oh, same. Uh, people pick on me about the fact that if I've got 25 free minutes and, you know, not a lot that needs to get done, I will take a nap and I can fall asleep anywhere. Well, they make fun of you because they're jealous. <laughs> <laughs> that's why they make fun of you, because yes. everybody wishes they could do that. Sleeping is awesome. Yes, it is. And necessary. What's your non-work-related kryptonite? You know, it's I don't know if it's work-related or not, but I would say knowledge. I'm a shiny things person, and because of that, I like to learn about any and everything, which spills over into work, and then I go, oh, I know a little bit about that, but I can easily fall down the rabbit hole of looking up I'll watch a movie and then start looking up the person that was in the movie to see what actually happened in real life. And then, you know, four hours later, I'm like, oh, and then what happened when they went to? So I think knowledge and, and the pursuit thereof is probably my kryptonite because I can get way off track. Just in the weeds. Really, really in the weeds. What's your definition of failure? I, I don't believe in failure. I will say uh, probably about seven years ago, I heard a statement that really has changed my life. And it said, there's no such thing as failure because every decision ultimately leads you to the same path. So failure for what most people would call failure, I just call a turn or a detour. So yes, there's probably a very straight path. But for me, I don't believe that anything is a particular failed spot. It means I took a turn, I learned something, and it will take me around a curve or around a, a bend that will get me back onto the same track. Got it. I love it. Okay, cool. No one's ever said that before. Really? Yeah, that they don't believe in it. Yeah, I, I really I really don't, which is, again, probably very annoying to a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. That's on them. That's not on you. Aside from the obvious, like losing a loved one, what are you afraid of? So for me, my greatest, you know, fear, if you will, is really just not knocking it out of the park. So I try to not shy away from saying things like, I'm going to change healthcare worldwide, or I'm going to make an impact on every life instead of, 
oh, I found a little group that I can really, you know, manipulate or change or have some improved outcomes. So really thinking big, like I don't want to be being eulogized and, you know, my spiritual self is laying in the casket thinking, man, that wasn't that hard. I, you know, I wish I had gotten to do X, Y, or Z. Like I want to be no regrets. Yeah, one of my questions was going to be, um, after you pass, what do you want to be known for? Ooh, well, there's a, I told you, I, I love Beyonce before we started recording. Yes. And she has a song called I Was Here. And it says, I was here, I lived, I loved, I did everything I wanted, and it was more than I thought it would be. I was here. I want to be remembered as someone who really lived, loved, and touched lives, whether that was via my work, whether that's via my church, whether that's via, you know, just being the person that you gave a call to when you were having a bad day. Like, literally, I want the professional accomplishments to be kind of so far down the list. And it's, it's a personal connection, not just as she really helped me get my business off the ground. Yeah. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? I think I would change a bit of my practicality. Um, I tend to be a person that I, ca I call myself a realist. Um, I'm very much a, while I want you to be big and audacious, you know, I used to lecture, if you're a person that can't pass biology, you're probably not going to be a doctor. Um, and sometimes it just feels negative. With so many negative influences in the world, I really sometimes bristle at the fact that I can be the person saying, ooh, you might want to be realistic with your dreams. And so I think I would change a little bit of that. I sometimes am very envious of people who are you know, the ultimate optimists, and they just see good and positivity everywhere. And I'm just going, yeah, no. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I see holes in that logic. Yes. I see holes in your happiness logic. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what do you think is the best part of the entrepreneurial scene in Charlotte? Mm. I think the best part is the undiscovered parts. I think because we're so early on in our, you know, idea of building an ecosystem, there are so many people doing so many really cool things that if you just dare to venture out of whatever silo or, you know, co-working space or, you know, home office or whatever, and just go to something, you know, oh, I don't know, what, what's that group of people? I think the best part is stumbling across just people doing magnificent things that you would just never have known about. And I think that's the that's the short side and the beauty of our ecosystem. It's not completely knit together yet. So there's still like these, you know, hidden jewel diamond in the rough kind of entrepreneurs and founders and concepts that you're just like, oh, wow, we got that in Charlotte too. So is there anything that you think could be improved? Mm. I would say across the board, I think the three things that I think could be improved, and I like speaking in threes. Um, one, I think we have to change the way we look at entrepreneurship. So when I hear people say entrepreneurship at this point, what they're really talking about is high growth and, and you know high growth concepts that are going to really go somewhere. When entrepreneurship across the board could be main street businesses that are your bread and butter regular business, they're still entrepreneurs. Um, so if we changed our concept of what entrepreneurship is or our idea around it, the mythology around it, I do think we would have greater support for all founders. So that's the people where, you know, no, I may not ever be a high tech company, but I generate lots of money doing what I do best or doing what I love. And so I think those, you know, those are two points that I'd like, I think we could change. And then the third thing is, Charlotte really has got to figure out Charlotte, not be Austin light or Silicon Valley light or a little New York or a baby Atlanta, insert, 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 right? Baby Atlanta. I love it. <laughs> it's like, don't, we have to figure out kind of our own identity and stop trying to copy or cherry pick portions of other people's identity and impose them upon Charlotte because I don't think it works. Mm, interesting. Okay, awesome. Thank you for playing along with the lightning round there.
Now I want to talk a little bit about your role in the entrepreneurial scene in Charlotte and talk about your professional experience. It says in your bio that you studied biomedical science and neurological surgery. Mm -hmm. So can you explain what that is for people in the audience who don't know? And by people in the audience who don't know, I mean me. <laughs> uh, heads and tails of it is I study brain tumors high growth, really big, really creepy, invasive brain tumors. So the tumors... The kind you see Meredith Grey operate on? Yes. On Grey's Anatomy. That's a really oh good God. pop culture Okay, reference. I do know what you do. Yes. How exciting. So the brain tumor that John McCain had, the brain tumor that Bo Biden had. Um, so the... We'll call it cool because it is kind of a cool biological mechanism. Tumors are like these big, big blobs, but they have these little tentacles on the edges and those tentacles can literally go anywhere. I mean, literally anywhere. That's why you have growth in other places in your body. So my job was to say, how do I keep those tentacles closer to the blob? If I can keep them closer to the blob, we can take all of it. If we can take all of it, we can cure you. So my job was to, by any means necessary, really keep that tumor enclosed. So my study, my research, my work for a while was literally making drugs that would kill any breakaways, kill any fast runners, literally keep them as close or make the surrounding environment really unappealing mm. to the ones that are going to break away. That's really fascinating. It was one of those things where um, I, I learned a tremendous amount about life. So a high grade, grade four tumor is going to be terminal. So if you got that diagnosis, the clock has started already for you. Literally, my team literally could come in and say, okay, we're your last, you know, last frontier, if you will. If we're the last frontier, what do we have, including the kitchen sink that we can throw at this to give you five more weeks, six more weeks, eight more weeks? And if you're already on the timer, eight weeks is like eight years. So the concept of time and the value of time and the quality of time just really changed my life, quite frankly, about how I think about making the most of whatever you've got. It was a really cool job to see someone's family member come in thinking, I've got 13 weeks, and then they lived another six weeks. And they're like, oh my gosh, I know things are getting towards the end, but I got another six weeks. And in my head, I'm thinking, you're still going to die. Yeah, and, and six weeks is like it's just six weeks. But when you're at the end, it's, oh, my God, it's an extra six weeks. Yeah. That's everything. It's everything. Yeah. And so, no, that was that's an amazing job. And the people who still do that day to day are incredible people. I don't know that they're as cool as Mer Meredith Grey on Grey's Anatomy, but. Well, she's also incredibly annoying. I would like to throw <laughs> her off a cliff half the time. But the research that they do um, in Grey's Anatomy, I used to watch that show, the cancer-eating virus, for example. Our lab, the lab that I trained in, actually was the first lab to create a oncolytic, a cancer-eating virus that would stop a tumor from progressing. So that stuff is real, and it's based on something. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. Um, I always wonder, you know, with people with your background, can you watch shows like that? Because half the time you must just want to, like, throw something at the TV because it's just so absurd. You can watch it. You just can't watch it with other people. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you're probably more annoying to the people around you that are really like, okay, we get it. You're smart. You oh know. My God. I would love it. Anytime you want, like, let me just come over and watch you watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. That would be a trip. I, I have literally been like, okay. No, <laughs> no, that, that's not how that works. And no. So I, it's I, like yeah. forensic science people who watch like CSI shows. They're just like, no, you can't fast track the prints in 20 seconds. Like, no, you can't right. run it through the thing in 12 minutes and have a oh, full yeah. analysis. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, such and such is the father. Yeah. You just like truncated like three and a half weeks of work. Right. And yeah. or, you know, I love the ones that are especially like six steps removed. And it's like, Oh, by taking this tiny piece of DNA that didn't have any actual DNA on the component, it's like, oh, we took this soda can, and now we know that, no, it wasn't that person, but it was like two relatives down the line. It's like, okay, stop. Yeah, uh -uh. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so how did you go from, you got your MBA, mm -hmm. and so I'm assuming that you had interest in business, and then you went and did your PhD. Oh, the way around. Oh, okay. Interesting. So you did this first and then you did your MBA. All mm -hmm. right. So that makes a little bit more sense. Mm -hmm. So walk me through 
what your decision was to sort of move outside of this space a little bit and then into the business space. Like, what is it about the overlap of those two things that excites you? A couple of things. One, I went into my degree not knowing what I wanted to do. So I did this really cool hybrid program that you could have taken a track that put you on a much more medical track um, and then maybe reverted back going to medical school and, you know, been a, a provider, you know, of care. Or you could do what I did, which was straddle the fence, um, half research, half in the clinic. Or you could be a professor and, you know, and be a researcher. I did want to be a researcher. I didn't want to be a medical doctor. I was trying to kind of straddle the fence. And I had, my lab was huge. So we had half a floor of a cancer center. Um, there's at our peak, I think, 60-some people as a part of this lab. I was the token American, meaning there was no one else that was from the U.S. And so I learned so much about other cultures. But I remember them looking at me one day, and my group was made of Italians, people that were Polish, and uh, some English guys, and uh, some Asian guys. And they just said, you talk too much. <laughs> And they're looking at me, and they didn't mean it in a rude way, but they said, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I said, well, I'm doing it. And they said, yeah, it's not about you being smarter. And they said, you know, maybe you should consider things that leverage these other skills that you have because you really like talking and sharing and, you know, thinking two steps ahead on what we're going to do after this or how is this going to, you know, change lives. And they said, well, that's not what we do. We are researchers were translational researchers. So we are going to work on the same thing for 20 years. You're really specific. Very specific. Yeah. So, you know, you know, you learn a whole lot about a very little. And I was lucky because one of my uh, advisors um, was an MD, PhD, who happened to commercialize several patents. And he said, all right, are you sure you, do, you, you know, okay, you're making the right choice? Yeah. He put me in contact with our commercialization office for the university, which is the office that receives all of these ideas and says, okay, we'll get a patent on this and then we'll try to put it in the industry. And that literally changed my trajectory because it started to say, okay, all of this important work is, you know, just going to be another paper if someone isn't putting it into the economy. Right, if it's not applied. It's just theoretical if it's not applied. It's, exactly. Um, and so these clinical trials get out into the world somehow. And so I learned the business. I never took a business class before an MBA, which was probably a bit astonishing um, for a lot of people. But I went into, excuse me, investment banking as my first job. And it was really saying, okay, somebody's making money off the stuff that those guys that, you know, I grew to love over, you know, four and a half years are doing. I want to be a part of that. And that was my overlap in really saying, okay, I can take this love of science, this love of knowledge, this love of healing and taking concept of extending time and get it into the broader economy to make sure other people can really enjoy the great work that other people are doing. So what was your first job after getting your MBA? Oh, I got this amazing offer to be the head of mergers and acquisitions for a family medical, cardiac medical device company. And what they did was, um, they were, I think, number four in their industry. But if you've ever had someone who had a heart attack, once you have a major event, your likelihood of having another major event is uh, extremely high within 18 months. And so they send you home on these monitoring devices. And that little device literally gets beamed to centers across the country. And this company made the devices, got them to patients, and we did the medical readings. So my job was to say, how do I consolidate this industry? And first of all, get a new technology out because they had introduced a new product and say, how do we grow through acquisition? So I literally came in guns blazing and tried to wrap in as many mom and pop businesses as I could into my company so that we could move from number four in the industry to number two in the industry. So tell me about the $50 million you raised for the healthcare and social impact focused fund. What is the fund? And how did you raise all that money? So two, and we're still currently in that, so we haven't completely closed around. Um, two funds, one, um, Black Pearl, um, and that is healthcare specific and 
What we do there is we try we try to stay centered in dental care, telemedicine, or manufacturing in the healthcare space. But what makes us unique is we're looking for ideas that aren't the new sensor that goes in your iPhone that's consumer gadgety that you know, only certain people can afford, but really taking businesses or technologies that are thriving in Asia, Africa, or the Caribbean and saying, can we bring those kinds of innovations, innovations that have to thrive in a system that's not developed, that have to access people with very little money and actually deploy them and implement them in either our urban or rural settings that are suffering from healthcare disparities. So that's the first fund. Um, Fund two um, is Coactive Capital, um, which is looking more at social impact and social impact from a standpoint of, again, let's not look at just those high growth companies. Let's look at the companies where people depend on them for jobs. People end up in, quote, entrepreneurship because they have no choice. They are formerly incarcerated. They are undereducated. They can't get a job for whatever reason. If we talk about solving economic mobility, we have to learn and figure out how to create generational wealth. And you can't create generational wealth if you don't create freedom for those founders, meaning you have a business idea, whether it's high tech or not. If we give you the underpinnings to run a good business, we can literally set you and your children up for a better tomorrow. Those are the two funds. That's great. All right. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about this and learn more about you and your background and your experience. But first, we're going to take a short break from our sponsors. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. Alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching, can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. So where are the investments now? Like what are you fundraising for and how much are you going after? Uh, Black Pearl, we are focused on a couple of concepts, but one that we are most excited about, um, I, I love the founder um, as just a person who is really ambitious, but it's called Lucas Pie Bio. Um, and that company is taking one of the things that really constrains our healthcare system, which is drug manufacturing. So who makes money on drugs? How much do we mark it up? You know, how long? It takes 10 years on average, some, sometimes a lot longer, for a new drug to get to market. And that's a barrier to entry for anybody that's new. So she's coming in um, and turning that on its head and really saying, you know what? I've done this for 10, 15 years. I have an expert team. We're going to reduce those barriers to entry. We're cutting out that excess cost. We're going to make sure that drugs can be made in a way that is cheap, easy, easy, and affordable um, in an effort to control drug pricing. We are super excited about that. That project um, is actually happening uh, in Philadelphia. It's about $85 million total as the raise. Um, Black Pearl was the first money in. Um, and the first founding investor. And one of the cool things about that concept is I kind of get a twofer. So I get the healthcare side, but part of that concept is also creating, she's building this facility in an area of Philadelphia that doesn't have great jobs. The average starting salary for uh, that company is $60,000. Wow. So and she's not requiring that you have a master's degree. She's requiring you made it through high school. And all the training happens after that. And so creating this local impact within that community, it's 
excuse me, um, located on a, on a bus line, on a um, also on a rail transit line, easily accessible, um, and really reducing the barriers for jobs and people coming into the industry, but then saying we're reducing drug costs. So um, we have some investors that are very interested in this because if you think about manufacturing, it's not very sexy, but it's the underpinnings of why things cost so much. Um, and it's, it's a made in America concept. So right, yeah. really excited about that. So I'm going to jump in for just a second. Mm-hmm. I have a background as a documentary, documentary filmmaker. Mm-hmm. That, what you just described right there, is a documentary waiting to happen. The before and after of that neighborhood, yeah. the before and after of that area, the before and after. Because interventions like that that are so intentional mm-hmm. on a bus line, on a train route, with on-site training for the people working there, right? You could, I can, I'm, I can just picture the narrative in yeah. my head of what it's going to look like, and it's really exciting to think. It, I, I always get goosebumps because the founder, um, she's from Gary, Indiana. She is a black female founder. Um, she's also a part of the LGBTQ community, and she's a minority in manufacturing, healthcare manufacturing, which makes her like the unicorn of unicorns. Yeah, there's like a horn on her horn. Yeah, but the intentionality of changing where you are is what has attracted Black Pearl to her and is why, you know, we are looking forward to a, you know, forever year relationship with this company because I do see, I see the the longer term plan, she wants to build the second manufacturing facility in Africa. And instead of having, you know, vaccines being created in the U.S. and then, you know, kind of dropped on people's heads, teach that particular locality to make their own vaccines so that when they have spikes in specific diseases, they have a ready-made system and there's no lag in shipping. That is a Nimble manufacturing. Yes. That's a concept that people, what? That, That can't happen. They don't have the training. Great, we'll train them. And then, you know, we don't have to worry about it. I love that. That can't happen. Watch me. <laughs> exactly. Watch me now. Exactly. Okay, so I interrupted you about your the first fund. So the second fund, Coactive Capital, where are you? What are you raising for? How, how's that going? Oh, so that's going great. Um, we have this concept tucked into Coactive called the Boost Pad, and it's like an accelerator, but it's an accelerator that's very approachable and accessible to We'll call them regular people, not people who are MBA light or looking for, you know, some high level education. It's literally saying, can we take someone who has a business idea and concept, give them the tools they need practically, not just say, okay, we'll help you write a business plan. We'll help you with a financial model and go. And then saying, after you've gone through our nine weeks of training, here's $10,000 that you can spend in our ecosystem that we're hoping to knit closer together. There are people who do marketing. There are people who do um, pitch work. There are people who do everything that you need for a business. Here's $10,000 to not only help your business, but to contribute to their business. So we're Uh looking for that multiplier effect because so often in Charlotte, we ask entrepreneurs or you know, small business owners to give of their time and talent for free. And even if they want to do it, it's, I don't know of any landlord or mortgage company that will take, I volunteered this month, you know, as payment. Right, yeah. <laughs> and if you find them, let me know, because yeah. we're all, moving in. We're all living in that same house. But, yeah. and so that is what we're really focused on and raising for um, coming into 2020 is, can we take 25 founders marry them with $10,000 and, you know, this new package of education, surround them with additional tools and help them build businesses in opportunity zones, which is something that, you know, we hear a lot of, at this point, mixed, you know, press about as to whether or not they're going to have impact in their community. But we're taking these entrepreneurs and allowing them to thrive in the communities that they're already in. So my hope with that second fund and what we're raising for and how we are being intentional about who we're investing in is that we'll have the multiplier effect with the professionals giving the services, but we'll also have the multiplier effect of those who were underrepresented or underemployed creating employment opportunities and really creating this, you know, 
inferno of activity where I may not have been able to push my business forward, but now I got the tools and resources that I need. And we're, we're not naive in thinking $10,000 is going to save the world. Sure. Yeah, that's why we have the, start. the other side of the fund yeah. that will say, okay, great. You've used your $10,000. You're on a good track. Now let's bring in another bit of money and let's help you be, you know, stable in your community. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the first few companies that we're working with come through that gambit and really be able to say, and my company now hired and employs five people, 10 people, right, 15 yeah, people. Yep. That's going to just be really exciting for me. Interesting. All right. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, cause you, you know, you sort of, you've brought up race a couple times, mm-hmm. right? And I want to talk about your identity as a black woman in the VC space, because your presence here and your success here is actually very statistically significant when we look at the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a something called Project Diane, which is a study funded by J.P. Morgan Chase and the Kauffman Foundation. Uh, according to the website, this is a quote. Since 2009, black women-led startups have raised $289 million in venture and AC fu- angel funding. This represents 0.0006 of the 424 billion in total tech venture funding raised since 2009. So 289 million sounds like a lot, right, for black woman-led startups, but compared to 424 billion, Mm -hmm. it's not. So what does it mean to you to be successful in this space? And why do you think it's so hard for black women to get to move the needle? Mm. I would say I'll, I'll answer those questions in reverse. I think one of the things that we encounter in the VC space is we invest in the people we know. If you don't know any black women, you don't know any black women. I mean, I always like statistics and studies like that and like the juxtaposition of them against the fastest growing segment of black uh, um, of entrepreneurs and new businesses are started by black women. Mm-hmm. The yeah. most educated are black women. The um, the most read, buying, consuming the most uh, media and books is black women. Yet they're underinvested in, and there's a there's a lot of theories behind this, right? And I I can again get really into the weeds on this. One of them is how we perceive black women, mm-hmm. especially ambitious black women. Yep. Um, and I am one of them. So I would say I have literally shown up at a meeting and sat there and sat there and sat there, and the guy was looking for someone else. Uh, and finally great. he comes out and says, um, I said, I, I'm waiting. I've been here about an hour. And he says, you're Dr. Williams? And I said, yes. And he says, you're black. And I said, lovely. Well, well today, yes, I am. And he kind of looked at me and he says, no, 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 no. And I was like, you know, it's really too late to reverse out of this. Yeah, you can't back out of that. But it's it's saying in my head, I've, uh, you know, I am a person who doesn't sign my first name. Um, I now go by Dr. Shantae as my professional name. But when I started out, it was S. Dot. So you didn't know if I was a man or a woman. Williams is a common surname. Mm -hmm. So I, I, if you will, played the game. And for me, success has been me using my body as a black woman to be invisible because people don't necessarily see black women in meetings. They don't see them as threats. They don't see them as competition. And I was able to use that invisibility as a superpower. People didn't care about speaking freely or candidly in front of me because they didn't perceive me as a threat or someone mm-hmm. that could challenge, or someone that could start something of my own. And I use that invisibility as a way to just kick ass. So that's what success has been for me. I think the more we start to highlight you know, these narratives of women, black women in particular, who are really talented, and then applying the question of, why didn't you know about them? Why did it take them 10 years to get this great concept that now everybody loves off the ground? And and start saying, you know, how do I challenge the way you see that person? Were they always the person sitting in the same meeting and you just didn't 
recognize them? Is it because you just don't know any black people? I don't know. <laughs> um, and I've had people actually say to me, well, can you just send to some black people? And I have to remind them I'm not the black whisperer. <laughs> if you would like to know some black people, you probably could just walk up. Well, I don't know how to start a conversation. Hello is probably the easiest thing to oh, say. Like Bless. <laughs> But, you know, when I think about statistics like that, I think the more we have a lot of diversity funds that have been started over the last, we'll call it five, six years, paying attention to these kind of topics. I will say, again, as a researcher, looking at what they actually invest in would surprise you. So there are diversity funds and they're seeking people of color and they're seeking women and they're seeking, you know, underrepresented founders. But their statistics are kind of mixed. And I will say that one of the things that black women tend to suffer from in the VC space is being lumped in and then confused for white women. Hmm. So when people say underrepresented founders, it's very different to say underrepresented versus black women because, or a minority founder. Okay, if you're a white woman, you're a minority, which means I can afford to overlook other women because I now have invested in a minority that is also female. Uh, or underrepresented in the space. And it's it's really an interesting kind of dichotomy that without focused intentionality, I'm not sure that statistic will change no matter how many diversity funds we really have. Yeah, and the other thing to think through is, right, you know, the patriarchy, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So if if you have these systems where white men have sort of always been in place, the way that we sort of naturally work is we, you see some you see an upper-comer, up-and-comer, and you're like, oh, you remind me of me, mm-hmm. right? You remind me of me. I know what to do with you. I know how to mentor you. I know mm-hmm. how to coach you. I know how to help you because you remind me of me. Well, if all the people at the top are doing that, then they're coaching and mentoring and lifting other people up that look like them, which mm-hmm. then represents or re- recreates and reproduces the systems that we already have. Yeah. So the question is, you know, and what I try to challenge people to think through and think about, you know, if you're an investor, if you are someone in a position of power, try to mentor people that don't remind you of you. Mm-hmm. Go out of your way to find people that remind you or don't remind you of anything about yourself mm-hmm. and see what you can do with those people. Like, mm-hmm. how good are you at your job if you're only recreating mini yous? Yeah. Really push yourself and try to find someone who does not and see how far you can take them. I always, I I like that, but I will tell you, the very interesting commentary I get on myself is, you are like an old white man. People <laughs> tell me that all the time. I do like scotch. I sometimes smoke cigars. You know, dot, 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 you know, kind of a stereotypical bankery kind of sure. thing. And it's funny because I chuckle and say, I have been fortunate that I have gotten the you remind me of me, not because you look like me, but because I see drive, ambition, mm-hmm. good ideas, vision. And and so I'm okay with people saying, you remind me of me, as long as that doesn't mean physical. Sure. And yeah. often it does. And yeah. that's I think that's the sad part is we can't see those qualities in people that don't look like us. And so Yeah, or it's harder to see those qualities. Right. Yeah. You're you I will tell you I am what people would call an aggressive personality. But they would call that, you know, ambition and directness in someone else. Oh, absolutely. So yeah. I I am you know, I had to make my peace with just being people thinking I'm angry. And it's like Oh God, this the angry black woman stereotype. My first. Critique. It makes me angry just hearing about it. <laughs> my first critique as a uh, at, at my first job was, you seem so angry all the time, and my comeback wasn't, oh no, I'm not. I literally said, well, can you do things to not piss me off? <laughs> well, there you go. And they went. I said, yeah, you're expecting a disproportional response to you doing or saying something egregious. I'm supposed to just be happy to be here. And I got silence. I ended up getting a raise, but I don't know if that's because go. it was a bit uncomfortable or what. But it's like, don't call me angry after you've punched me in the face. So. All right. Well, when we get back, I want to jump into See the South and I want to hear your advice for the people pitching. So stay tuned. 
This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by Delivery Path. Are you happy with your website provider? Because I definitely am. I use Delivery Path because they specialize in web hosting, security, and optimization. That means my site is fast, secure, and stable. It's online all the time, and I don't have to worry about it because that's their job, and they're really good at it. They take care of the daily, weekly, and monthly upgrades, so my site is always up to date. Unlike discount WordPress web hosting companies, Delivery Path provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't just use chatbots to help you, they actually chat with you. When you call Delivery Path, someone local answers the phone. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think your business is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want your website to work for you, then let the experts at Delivery Path manage it for you. And they're offering a special discount for our listeners. If you mention the promo code FUN, you'll get 10% off your first three months. For more information, visit deliverypath.com or email service at deliverypath.com. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by The Pitch Prof. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? Or are you a small business or startup trying to raise capital or pitch investors? My company is The Pitch Prof, and my specialties are investor pitches, business presentations, and public speaking. I help clients develop, design, and deliver their presentations for maximum ROI. Whether you're going after 20 grand or 2 million, I can help you get the money you need so your business succeeds. I help my clients craft and structure the content in the presentation, visually design it, and deliver it as an authentic and engaging public speaker. If you want to advance your career or your business, Hire a communication coach, because what you say is as important as how you say it. Regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit thepitchprof.com. Okay, so let's talk about Seed the South. What advice do you have for people practicing their pitches? As an investor, what are you looking for in a good pitch? What are the must-haves? What are the deal-breakers? I would say practice two things. One, you know all the, the key points, but practice delivering them in a way that's personable and people want to interact with you. Emoting through your words, making a connection to the person you're listening to is really important. When I judge competitions now, I think where a lot of people, a lot of founders, a lot of pitchers fall down is answering the questions. Hmm. Just answer the question. (laughs) Don't give me a story. And frankly, you, I have found that the more questions you can get through in a pitch competition, you know, short Q&A, the better you end up doing in that competition. So don't give me a story. If the answer is no, the answer is no. If the answer is I don't know, the answer is I don't know. I think we try to present such a cultivated image. If I say, how much money have you generated and how you know this year and how much next year, don't give me a story about how you're on a growth track. Just say this year we and then next year we hope to. You know. Right. And it, it you know, don't be ashamed of what you've accomplished in in answering your questions and I think that makes for Shorter answers that make you more effective with judges. I, I have gotten lost in people's answers, and you know they spend three minutes weaving this yarn, and then I'm going, oh, my God. So that's, that's the advice is be ready for the questions. You can probably anticipate most of the questions. And just answer them. Be honest and candid. You know, don't tell me everything. Don't, you know, don't strip down to your underwear, you know, and tell me everything. But <laughs> that is memorable. <laughs> that is memorable. Just not advisable. Exactly. Uh, but just answer the question. Like, I, I don't know. I yell at people all the time. Uh-huh. Is that a yes or a no? Right. <laughs> so. Well, and what's interesting, so I've had a couple other people. I've been interviewing people for, um, you know, this, the week, this week's worth of podcasts leading up to See the South. And some people have said, tell a story. Mm -hmm. And I will recommend certain clients to tell a story. Mm -hmm. I think, which I think is great. I actually appreciate the fact that different people give different Mm -hmm. pieces of advice, Mm -hmm. right? Because we're all not saying the same thing. I think the context or the story for me relates to context. Yeah. To your point, you know, how many customers do you have? 
don't tell a story <laughs> then. Exactly. Right? Like, you might want to tell, like, an origin story. Like, oh, the idea came to me when I was traveling in China, and I realized, sure, that's a great place for a story, but there's a time and a place for a story. I love the connection in the pitch. Up front, sure. I yeah. know who you are. I know why you're here. I know why you're passionate. I know why this is a pain point. Great. If I will tell you, if I ask you a question and you start with a story, it either tells me you're trying to snow me with a bunch of extra words, or you don't know. And so that could not be the case, but I think we want to relate so much via storytelling that, yes, I want that in the pitch. I do not want that in the Q&A. So right. yep. I, I like a good story, but if I've got two minutes, get to the point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, does the look of the pitch deck matter to you at all? How, how important to you is the look of the deck? Ooh, I'm probably going to gonna divert from probably some previous That's advice right. but I'll say two things one I generally don't look at the slides behind you because I'm listening to the words you say yeah um but when I do glance over it should be clean and simple and easy for me to read because the second I divert my attention and look at the slides if there's a lot going on I stop listening to you yep absolutely it's so important so make it easy, make it simple. If I got a squint and sometimes I'm not wearing my contacts and I can't see it, I've lost everything you're saying. And so it, it matters to me, not that it's professionally crafted, but that it's easy to understand. I would rather people do away with all the graphics and do four or three or four bullet points on a slide and you know move on than bells, whistles, animation, things flying in from the side. Oh, no, you know, no, no. Spiders dropping from, the, I don't know, <laughs> like whatever, like right, special yeah. effects. And then I will say, this is my personal pet peeve. Maybe I read and have this. I hate videos and pitch decks. I really, 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 really do. I've yeah. never seen someone embed a video and it's just seamless. Yeah. I've always seen it be, oh, wait a minute. Oh, is this connected? I don't know. No one's got yeah, time for it's that. Awkward. It's awkward. It, it, destroys your cadence and so yeah, the flow I just I I love I aesthetically love beautiful things I think if you can work with somebody who can polish yes polish it but also clean and simple yeah I do a lot of um I work with an investor and pitch presentations and I just wind up stripping most of the content out because if you're you, you should be focused on the person and the slide should be minimal it's not an email deck. It's an in-person deck. Yeah, There's it, a difference. That's the difference people don't know. It's, I, I will tell you my deficit when I put together presentations is I don't do enough words because I, am, I lean much heavier on the in-person presentation mm -hmm. that I'll have a title and a, and a graphic and that's it. And, and it, I've emailed that to people before and they're kind of like, what, what is this? <laughs> yeah, there is a difference. I do. Yeah, that is, that's funny. Some people go the other way. Yeah. Um, I've heard over and over again that investors invest in the team mm -hmm. more than just the idea mm -hmm. or the product. Mm -hmm. So what are you looking for in a founder or the team? Likeability. Nobody likes to know it all one way or the other. So if you're, I'm a person that has slightly, a slight bit of education, I can come off as a know-it-all. Um, or, you know, someone that's matter-of-fact and, you know, not personable. Uh, so that's kind of step 1A maybe, but then after that, purpose, passion, and longevity. We tend to underestimate in a team. Like I get exit and wanting to make a quadrillion dollars on exit, but I got to know that as soon as, you know, the grits hit the fan, you're not out of here. I need to know that you're resilient. I need to know that you're going to hear a bunch of no's. You're probably going to hear a no from me too, but I need to know that you can make it to the other side of that. So I'm looking for someone who can hear my feedback and not get defensive. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for somebody who can hear feedback. And sometimes feedback is just feedback. Oh, okay, thank you. You know, don't dismiss it, but at the same time, don't change your whole concept either. Right, yeah. You can't be all over the place. Um, I'm looking for someone who is committed. I see a lot of people flip from startup to startup, and it's, you know, they've started four or five, six companies in two years, you focused on nothing. These yeah. aren't iterations of the same idea. And I, so I'm looking for commitment. I think we, you know, have the Instagram success company story all in our head. So if it's taken more than six months to be a millionaire, you're like, 
maybe this isn't the concept. So I'm looking for that. And then experience, but not experience that's, I would say, you know, on the nose experience. If you are a failed founder for me, that tells me that you might actually know a bit. And that experience is, you know, my company didn't make any money. I now know what not to do this time around. Sure, yeah. That, to me, is where I know you came back for more. You must be nuts. And yeah, gonna, you know how hard this is, you and you're going to do it again. Exactly. You're, you're starting from zero again. And I think those are the things I look for in a team. I also do look for actual expertise. Like, I think we build teams with our friends. I ha- will never forget I had a guy that really wanted to do this medical device company. It was him and his, you know, two friends. Not a drop of medical training other than putting on a Band-Aid anywhere. And they were trying to sell something into healthcare systems. You guys need some expertise. Go find somebody. Go get some board of advisor members, but you can't just drop in with no knowledge. I get disruption, but I think sometimes we take that too far. (laughs) So I would say for me, it starts with do I like you and are you coachable? Yeah. And then from there. The coachability part is so important because what it means ultimately is the person acknowledges that there are smarter people in the world than them and that they want to learn and they want to get better over time. Exactly. I would add in and they want to learn from me or my team. Yeah. I will say as a person of color in this space, not everybody wants that. Sometimes Mm. they want my money and they don't want my opinion. They aren't sold separately. (laughs) That's a good tagline. (laughs) I like it. Well, thank you so much for coming. It was really great. I loved hearing all about your journey. And if people want to learn more about you and the organizations you're involved in, where can they get more information? Oh, I like to tell people I am Googleable. So I'm everywhere. Um, I'm active on social media. I will tell you the best social media site to interact with me or any of the initiatives I'm uh, connected to is LinkedIn. If you send me a message, I will reply to you. Okay, awesome. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at FunFailPodcast. You can learn more about the show at funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun.